Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. So far, we cannot avoid getting old. But our goal is to get there in style. And that is certainly my goal. I want to get there still standing up in style. Sleep medicine is a rather new field. Uh, It's only been in the last 50 years that we have learned what we know about sleep medicine. And believe me, we still know very little. There's lots to know about sleep. As you know, one-third of our lives is spent sleeping. Therefore, that one-third should be important. If you live to be 100, 33 years of your life you would have spent actually sleeping. And so sleeping is turning out to be a very, very strong health factor. And when sleep becomes bad or it's insufficient, it becomes also a very important risk factor. We used to think of sleep as the time where your brain turns off and just go to sleep and sort of the computer boots down and then you reboot in the morning. Not so. Sleep is a very dynamic activity. It is composed of, now we can divide it into sleep stages. Uh, stage 1, 2, 3, and stage REM that everybody remembers. Basically, everybody remembers stage REM. And each of these have physiological significance. But the question is, why do we sleep? It sounds kind of silly, you know? We all sleep because we have to, right? Because we need to. I remember having a professor in medical school that was searching for substance S, you know, the substance that made us sleep. And because he didn't want to sleep because, you know, eight hours you're wasting of your day. And uh, so he figured if he can stay awake and take whatever to, to prevent sleep, he could get more done. Well, I tell you, I like my sleep. I like to go and sleep and wake up refreshed, feeling like Clark Kent, ready to go every morning. And that's the goal that I think you all will have, you have today. But we do know that sleep is, um, has restorative properties, both uh, mental and physical. You feel better in the morning when you wake up. Certainly, it's a state of cardiovascular relaxation. Heart rate goes down, blood pressure goes down, something that we call dipping. Your metabolic rate goes down. And uh, there is actually uh, a a restoration of the brain. There is a a hypothesis that the brain actually, it's being damaged as we go through the day. And when you go to sleep, it repairs itself. Uh, Lately, we've realized that sleep is important for learning. Sometimes when we make some, uh, phys- uh, some medical discovery, we're very happy because this drug improves you by 5%. When you, sleep, when you study and you sleep and then you take a test, your ability to recall things can improve 80 to 90%. Is that good? And much better than many other systems that we study. REM sleep and deep sleep appear to be important for learning. And, but I tell you, the only thing we're sure of is that it cures sleepiness. <laughs> I hinted that disturbed sleep is dangerous to your health, but sleep disordered breathing, which we'll talk about today, sleep apnea, people who snore, has been strongly associated with cardiovascular disease. It's been associated with some metabolic disorders such as obesity, diabetes, inflammation, and and even with all-cause mortality. If um, we don't sleep enough, that is also dangerous to our health. In fact, sleep duration is turning out to be an emergent, very strong risk factor for health or bad health. Uh, There's been a number of studies looking at people who sleep less than six hours on a chronic basis, less than five hours on a chronic basis, and these people have more hypertension, they have more cardiac events, basically heart attacks, and um, 
It tends to follow the so-called Goldilocks model. This actually study came from UCSD. Uh, people who sleep less than seven and who sleep more than nine hours associated with more disease, more complaints, more anything. And it looks like those who sleep longer than nine is because it's like a, like a, a marker of poor health, but certainly less than seven associated with specific cardiovascular complications. So getting a good night's sleep is very, very important. One thing I don't want to happen is that you become paranoid or you become obsessed about getting sleep. I tell you, because if you do that, you will get less sleep. Sleep happens when you allow it to happen. Relax. You're at peace with the world. Sleep will come. Now, there are a number of forces that make us sleep. There's the, you've heard about the circadian forces, homeostatic forces, neurohormonal forces, and sociocultural. You know, I come from a culture that we take a nap in the afternoon. You know, uh, my dad takes a nap in the afternoon. It is very normal to do that. And we don't always do that in the United States. Unfortunately, we do it is because we have to, because we are so fatigued, we have to take a nap, because, not because we want to enjoy it. But I'd like to talk just a little bit more about circadian and homeostatic forces. But before that, this is a depiction of the brain. There's a number of centers in the brain that are important for sleep, but one of them is called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. You probably have heard about it. It's the internal clock. All of us have a clock. Every cell of the body has a clock, but this one is the master clock. It, it, it guides everything, and it's strongly associated with light. It is directly attached to our eyes, and light entrains this, helps us regulate our clock. Uh, our, our, our clock has a slightly longer than 24-hour period, and our day has 24 hours. So if you don't go outdoors, your clock will be out of sync. And this is, will be important later on in our talk. But we also produce this, this hormone called adenosine as we go through the day. And that appears to be a waste product of maybe damaging the brain. There's a hypothesis. And when we go to sleep and wake up, this adenosine goes away. And, and the theory is that it is actually helping the brain recover. And this is both the circadian and the homeostatic. This is the circadian down here, the homeostatic um, factors or forces driving us to sleep. There are certain times in the day we're most awake, certain times of the day that we feel the most sleepy. For example, around 9 in the morning, we feel pretty good. Around 2, 3 p.m., we have the postprandial sleepiness, right? Everybody wants to take a nap after eating a good meal. And back at 9 p.m., we feel uh, refreshed again for a little while, and then we start getting sleepy. We're the sleepiest in the 24-hour period around 3 a.m. or so. And then we start waking up. This thing is amazing. It follows very closely our internal temperature, our core body temperature. When we're the coldest, we're the sleepiest. When we're the warmest, we're the most awake. And we wake up as we're warming up, and we fall asleep as we are cooling down. This is a hypnogram. Basically, we take your sleep stages as you go to bed, and you wake up in the morning, and we plot them. And we can see that when you go to sleep, you're awake. You follow stage one, two, and three. We used to have four stages. Now it's only three. And notice that we do most of our deep sleep in the first third of the night. And then we have REM sleep that comes every 90 minutes. You've heard that before, probably. And, uh, but most of the REM happens in the last third. And notice that deep sleep goes away. People who routinely go to bed late, you know, instead of going to bed at uh, 10 p.m., they'll go to bed at 2 in the morning. They may be missing some of the good deep sleep that you need especially if you don't do it all the time. Haphazardly, you go to sleep late. You're missing some of your deep sleep. And that's when growth hormone comes. You know, growth hormone is good for our skin. As we're aging, 
Uh, growth hormone makes your skin more younger, supple. So uh, don't shortchange yourself. This is why our mother used to tell us to go to sleep early and sleep well. Why? Because you would grow in your sleep. At least my mother used to tell me that. And maybe she was right, because growth hormone comes out when you get some deep sleep. REM sleep is when we dream. 80%, 85% of our dreaming happens in REM sleep. And this is when you also have your nightmares in REM sleep. And it's a funny thing, in REM sleep, there are certain things that happen in REM sleep, such as you can't control your temperature, you can't shiver, and you can't move. You're paralyzed. Except some elderly people can move, and they fight in their sleep, and they punch. Um, just uh, about a month ago, uh, a couple came to me at the VA, and the lady says, I wake up, and he's got me in a headlock. You know, he's, he's wrestling with her at night um, because he's got this condition that we'll talk about it. Hopefully we'll have time, called REM sleep behavior disorder where elderly people act out their dreams, they usually violent dreams, and, and they fight in their dreams. Now, what's wrong with these individuals? They're flamingos, right? And they happen to be asleep. They're, they're standing or perched just in one leg. The other one's tucked under them. Their head is tucked under their wing. There could be a strong breeze, and they won't fall down. Amazing creatures. They can sleep standing up. Can you sleep standing up? Not really. This little girl is trying, trying to sleep standing up, but eventually she'll fall down. We cannot cough during sleep. Every time you cough when you have a cold or something, you wake up before you cough. And so when you really can't sleep because you got a cold, you really got to get something to suppress that cough so you can get some good, good restful sleep. We can swallow, but we not, don't do a very good job. We tend to aspirate. And elderly people tend to get pneumonias because at night you swallow and it goes down the wrong pipe and bacteria is in your teeth or your, um, and your mouth and it gives you a pneumonia. And we certainly have a hard time in some people keeping our throats open because our tongue relaxes, everything falls back and you choke, especially when you're on your back. Uh, my wife tells me that I'm starting to snore. I, like any good male, I deny it because I don't feel it. And, um, but hopefully it won't turn into sleep apnea. So there are certain things that happen. We can't keep our tone, our reflexes during sleep as, as all the animals may do. There are a few things that happen in our normal sleep physiology that may affect us as we get older. I already mentioned that we can't keep our body temperature. Uh, if you are very thin, that may be a problem. You tend to go into room temperature. Uh, you lose muscle tone in REM sleep, you're paralyzed, and that's when the apnea comes or gets worse. There's this so-called blood pressure dipping if you're taking medications that lower your blood pressure. Sometimes people get up at night and feel dizzy because the blood pressure drops. And we certainly hypoventilate. We breathe kind of shallow when we're asleep. That's normal. But if you already have COPD or emphysema, some type of lung disease, we see lots of patients in our clinic with that, then going to sleep may be dangerous to their health. And if their oxygen gets too low in their blood when they're asleep, we end up giving them supplemental oxygen. So you need to be aware of those things. 50% of the older adults complained of having some type of sleep difficulty. And uh, one of the things that Dr. Israel in the past, and I think myself, have emphasized is that getting old does not dictate that you won't be able to sleep. In fact, our need for sleep remains steady from the age of 20, 25, all the way until we die, you know, at 110, hopefully. But our ability to sleep does decrease. Because as we get older, we accumulate all kinds of problems, whether it be illnesses, pain, 
Uh, I had knee surgery last year, and, uh, and now I know what it is to wake up with pain. Before, I said, oh, there's nothing. It was painful. It would wake me up in the middle of the night. Polypharmacy. The average patient that I see has 10 to 15 medications, enough to gag a maggot. Uh, so, uh, you know, something has to be done really to live in a healthy life and not have to rely so much on medications. Uh, menopause, a retirement, you know, you were used to your daily life and all of a sudden, you know, you got all this time, you don't know what to do with yourself. Loss of a spouse, all kinds of things will affect our ability to fall asleep, stay asleep, or even sleep. And then, a topic for today, uh, as we get older, we have more sleep disorders. This is a depiction of our sleep stages as we age. Right here is at five years of age. Okay, you can see that these uh, little kids have lots of slow wave sleep. That's deep sleep. This is REM sleep. REM sleep stays pretty stable all the way to the end. But look at deep sleep. Deep sleep starts faltering, and it, at the very end here at 85 years of age, we're doing very little sleep. And the culprit here, or the people responsible for this, are not women, are men. Women are able to maintain their deep sleep pretty much intact till the very end. Men somehow, our brains, I don't know what happens, uh, we don't know why. We, by the time we're 85, we got 5% deep sleep, when it should have been 20, 25%. Women still have about 15 to 20. So women do better than men as far as keeping their, their um, proportion of sleep. Stage two stays about the same. Uh, look at wazo means wake after sleep onset. And this is where all the other multitude of problems that we have start encroaching into our ability to sleep. We wake up a lot, wake after we fall asleep. And that really increases quite a bit as compared to when we were kids. And stage one sleep goes up a little bit. That's very light sleep, transient uh, uh, sleep. Half of the people can still hear and understand things when they're sort of falling asleep. The other people can't. So there are definite changes um, as, as we go, um, as we get older. But it doesn't mean that we can't sleep or that we don't need more sleep. Uh, I get always this, this question is, you know, I'm getting older, I don't need that much sleep. That's not true. We do need that much sleep. Uh, it's just that we can't get it because of our medical or psychiatric or social problems. The um, age-related changes also have to do with our suprachiasmatic nucleus, that circadian uh, system. Uh, remember, the circadian system means around 24 hours, around a day's duration. Our internal clock is about uh, a little bit more than 24 hours. We need to be entrained with the sunlight, or with the sun, in order for us to, be, uh, to go in a 24-hour um, day. And that's called the Zeitgeber, a time giver. It's German, so I'm not sure I'm saying it right. But the bright light of the sun is the major time giver that entrains us into a 24-hour day. If you remain indoors all day long, you're eventually going to come off of that, and elderly people tend then to go to bed really early, and then wake up really early, and then put a pattern around the workshop and bother everybody in the family. And they call it sundowning and all kinds of things. Um, but it affects work schedule, and, um, and also things that entrain us will be our work schedule and our clocks. Looking at the clock also helps us keep this rhythm. Well, as we get older, this, this system that keeps us entrained with the world uh, tends to falter a little bit because our brains, I'm showing here a brain that is younger, a brain that, that, that is older, how it's got bigger holes inside and less uh, gray matter. 
so as, as we get older, we tend to get some cerebral atrophy. And so this suprachiasmatic nucleus also atrophies. And so it's weaker. The amplitude is, is, is not as big. In other words, the going from being really awake to really sleepy is not that big. Everything becomes the same, basically just sleepy. And, um, and also elderly people are not exposed to much sunlight. How many of you spent one to two hours a day in the bright sunlight? Very few, very few. Why? Because we're afraid of cancer. So if I'm 85 years old, who cares about cancer, right? I'm 85 years old already. Um, but um, I'm talking about bright light in the morning. It doesn't cause cancer. You know, spending, if people would spend one hour bright light in the morning, every morning upon waking up, there would be fewer sleep disorders, and people will sleep better and feel better. Just that. In, in fact, it's, it's a great antidepressant, uh, natural antidepressant, being outdoors. And the end result is, for elderly people, advanced sleep phase. People end up going to bed early, get up late. Uh, elderly people in nursing homes get almost zero bright light in the day. Zero bright light. They're just basically indoors all the time. So very, very important to prevent things like sundowning, waking up too early in the night, in the morning. We're going to be talking about a few sleep disorders. So obstructive sleep apnea, insomnia, restless leg syndrome, periodic movements. We'll talk about these together. It's about, and then at the end, REM sleep behavior disorder, which is a, an interesting disorder, although it's, it's rare. But you may find that your husband is doing it or your wife is doing it. And then well, we can talk more about it. So what's obstructive sleep apnea? Pauses in breathing, that's the apnea, absence of breath during sleep, obviously. And it's followed by these very loud gasping noises. Um, and um, as, as the breathing starts again, uh, it results in a brief awakening. And we call that a microarousal or an arousal. It fragments sleep. It, the patient may not be aware, the person may not be aware about that they're waking up. Because they don't wake up enough to open their eyes and look around and look at the clock. They, they just basically wake up in the laboratory. We can tell that their brains are waking up. And the end result is excessive daytime sleepiness. But let me show you what happens in the laboratory. This is a patient with severe obstructive sleep apnea. Right here is the EEG. By the way, this patient happens to be in REM sleep. And REM sleep, in most people, tends to worsen sleep apnea. Remember, because you're paralyzed. You can't move. Everything falls down and chokes you. And so this person has an apnea that's lasting almost one minute. These two channels is no flow whatsoever, yet the chest and the abdomen continue to make breathing efforts. This patient made 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 breathing efforts before they woke up and gasped for air. They, this is the waking up right here in the EEG. And, but notice what happens to the oxygen. It goes from around 95%, which is normal, oxygen in your blood, down to around 66%. Tremendous swings in oxygen. This puts a tremendous amount of stress in the cardiovascular system to the point that uh, most people with sleep apnea, when they go to sleep, instead of having that relaxation where blood pressure goes down 10 to 20%, either stays the same as when they're awake, or actually their blood pressure goes up when they go to sleep. That's called reverse dipping. Instead of dipping, they do reverse dipping. And we feel that this has a lot to do with the cardiovascular consequences that happen later on uh, after the years of enduring this kind of breathing through the night. Sometimes they breathe so loud that the, usually the wife moves out of the room. All right? and, or the neighbors are pounding on the walls if you live in a duplex. And they're wondering what's going on in there. Uh, and so this could be quite dramatic. So 
clinically, we have sleep fragmentation, the low oxygen, high carbon dioxide, and people wake up with a headache in the morning because of low oxygen and high carbon dioxide. Excessive daytime sleepiness, cardiovascular complications, primarily hypertension, and increased mortality and morbidity in the long run. Now, this is the typical American middle-aged male, right? Hopefully not. But this gentleman, when they come like this to us, we say this man has sleep apnea until proven otherwise. It is a health problem, public health problem. It's an epidemic associated with obesity, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, stroke, metabolic syndrome. That's a constellation of risk factors to getting a heart attack or a stroke. Uh, cognitive impairment. Some people will present with little dementia. And the, the question is, are they demented because they are getting Alzheimer's disease or some other dementia, or is it something else? And so we do a sleep study, and they have sleep apnea. We treat them. And sometimes we get lucky and their dementia goes away. Sometimes we don't. Depression, um, even glaucoma, and erectile dysfunction. Now, what do you think? Could she have obstructive sleep apnea? She shows up to my office. She looks in good health, right? But 25 to 30% of the patients with obstructive sleep apnea are actually thin. And I've seen women that look like this that have severe obstructive sleep apnea. Appearances are deceiving. Sleep apnea is not just a problem of something mechanically choking you during sleep. It can be due also to a function of the brain, a control of ventilation or respiration. This is from 1993, but this is the, the scientific paper that put sleep apnea in the medical map. This was done in, um, by Terry Young in Wisconsin, and she noted that out of people who were 30 to 60 years of age, working out there, not sick, not complaining of anything. They just brought him into the lab and did a sleep study. About 4% of men and 2% of women had obstructive sleep apnea syndrome, meaning they, they had symptoms when they asked questions. 24% of men and 9% of women had sleep apnea by the numbers. They were stopping breathing more than five times per hour. If you stop breathing more than five times per hour when you're asleep, that constitutes significant sleep apnea. The same group of people uh, looked at the same um, population and 10 years later, and now 17% of people were estimated to have mild or more severe obstructive sleep apnea. This is the general population. So we're talking about millions of people affected by this condition. And not everybody is overweight or obese. It could be thin people, as I've already mentioned. So this is an important public health problem that has all kinds of medical ramifications. If you look at specific populations, I'm just going to point out a few. For example, where we work here at the VA, older veterans, 80% of them will have obstructive sleep apnea. If I walk around at the VA, which I do, and I have a clinic there, and I say, he has sleep apnea, he has sleep apnea, everybody, I'll be right 80% of the time. So I didn't have to do a sleep study. I just say, they have sleep apnea, put them on CPAP. When in doubt, pressurize the snout. I'll show you what that is. And um, <clears throat> obesity, more than 50%, heart failure, atrial fibrillation, 45%, the elderly, 56 to 70. I believe there's two types of sleep apnea. One that I call the malignant sleep apnea. That's a sleep apnea that happens between the ages of 30 and 60. Strongly associated with being overweight. Strongly associated with getting a heart attack or a stroke or hypertension. And that one will kill you. Then there's sleep apnea that happens to all of us. As we get older, I tell you, if I do a sleep study and everybody here, I will find mild sleep apnea just about in everybody. Does it really hurt you? That, that question we don't know yet. 
we don't know yet. If you're symptomatic, most likely will hurt you, and treatment will help you. If you're asymptomatic, we're not so sure. And sometimes I get 85-year-olds who are struggling with their CPAP. I say, well, you know, at your age, you can do anything you want. Let's stop it and see what else we can do about it. Because sometimes I feel like I'm just torturing people with this machine. I'll show you the machines later on. But the point is that some specific populations have very high prevalences of obstructive sleep apnea. Consequences. You've seen this picture before. Dr. Israeli has it. I, I grabbed it from her lecture. You can dress him up, clean him up, but you can't take him out anymore. They fall asleep. It's dangerous to drive when you are sleepy. And even back in uh, the before cars, you know, people fell asleep at the wheel and got into trouble. And it's like, like now. Uh, it changes who you are. Lack of concentration, change of personality, depression, fatigue, irregular dysfunction, family discord. I tell you, men especially, when you don't sleep well and you have sleep apnea, they wake up like lions in the morning. They're angry, they're impatient. We treat them, they're like little lambs. They feel much, much better. Cardiovascular consequences, obesity, hypertension, hypersomnia, stroke, metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance, activated chemoreceptors, inflammation, sensitivity or sympathetic nervous system activity, hypercoagulability, angina, all kinds of things um, that can happen when you have obstructive sleep apnea. Risk factors, obesity. Obesity is the 800-pound gorilla for this condition. And you can see the horse is shaking because the fat guy is trying to ride him. But central obesity, especially in the neck, the chest, the belly, what we call um, also visceral fat, fat that is inside the belly is very, very dangerous compared to fat that's somewhere else. We look at the, the, the size of the neck. If a ne patient, a man has a neck more than 17 inches and a woman more than 16 inches, it's a risk factor for having obstructive sleep apnea. And you also know about the BMI, the body mass index, when it's greater than 30, that is um, obesity, um, but it doesn't have to be in the obese range. And as I mentioned, 70 to 75% of people with sleep apnea are overweight or obese. Another risk factor is being a man. Life is never fair, all right? Women have the menopause, we have the prostate. But now we have obstructive sleep apnea too. Before the menopause, for every one woman that has obstructive sleep apnea, there's, there are three men that have obstructive sleep apnea. After the menopause, women look more like men. Well, talking about the sleep apnea, okay? But these guys look about the same. Another factor is uh, an abnormal upper airway. The, the throat is just smaller in people with sleep apnea. Uh, even if they're not overweight, it's just a little smaller or collapses a little easier. That's what happens with men. Testosterone makes the throat collapse a little easier. As compared to women, estrogen is actually uh, prevents that, actually protects them. But sometimes the tongue is very large. You can see indentations of your teeth in the tongue implies that the tongue doesn't quite fit in your mouth. So tonight, go home, stick your tongue out, and look at it. And, and you'll see, you'll be surprised how many tooth indentations you have in your tongue. It's too big or too fat. The tongue actually gets fat. Terry Davidson, one of our professors here at UCSD, he actually did some work with, with cadavers. Uh, he cut their tongues out and just look at the fat inside the tongue. And it correlates very well with the fat in their body uh, and these people. And when we lose weight, we lose also fat in our tongue and in all the structures of the throat. And actually it becomes bigger, um, our, our throat. Sometimes all you can see is just huge tonsils. This is more common in children. And you take out the tonsils, you can see how this person would be able to breathe better. 
Unfortunately, that doesn't happen in adults. Surgery has turned out to be very poor results in adults, so that's not a very good approach. Sometimes uh, our chins are very small. We have a recessed chin we call retrognathia, and this lady has what we call the bird beak syndrome, where the nose looks like the beak of a bird and it just comes right into her chest. Uh, and that will predispose to sleep apnea because it puts the tongue much farther back, easier to choke when you're asleep. Or sometimes you can have what is called the, um, the lung face syndrome. Everything looks fine, they're thin, but the heart palate, the roof of the mouth, is very narrow. This would be somewhat normal, narrower, narrow, and very, very narrow. So the tongue doesn't have any place to be except it falls back. There's more space in the throat, and then they choke at night. Aging is bad for sleep apnea, both for women, the yellow ones, and red for men. As we age, um, as we become older, there's a higher prevalence of having obstructive sleep apnea. It's very important to choose your family, although when you're 70 years old, it's kind of late. But um, if you have more family members with sleep apnea, you have a higher risk of having sleep apnea. Smoking, especially more than two packs a day, it's also a risk factor. Alcohol before going to bed. Believe me, if you don't snore, and you take a couple of drinks and you go to bed, you'll snore that night. If you snore, but you don't have sleep apnea, you get a couple of drinks, you go to bed, you will have sleep apnea that night. And you have sleep apnea, just imagine what happens when you drink. It relaxes specifically the throat muscles and you're choking through the night. And some medical illnesses, hypothyroidism, post-polio syndrome, many more that potentially could worsen their prevalence of sleep apnea. Now, how do you know if you have obstructive sleep apnea? Well, clinical suspicion. Most of the time, your bed partner, your wife, or your husband is telling you, you snore too much. Go see the doctor. We can do two types of sleep studies, one in the laboratory and one you can do it at home. And some places, some insurances will not pay for a laboratory for a study at home. And uh, so we do the study in the laboratory where a technician applies electrodes to the head to look at your brain waves at your sleep. We can tell exactly when you fall asleep, exactly when you wake up. We can tell if you're having seizures or whatever. And then they wire you up, and then you go to sleep. The home sleep study, there's, there's legions of equipment that can be used for home sleep studies. These are some that we have used. This one is very common. Basically, a little thing in your finger here, a belt in your chest, and a nasal cannula, like the oxygen cannula, to measure airflow. This one measures oxygen through the forehead and the nasal cannula. This one measures changes in the pulsations of an artery in the finger. And through that, it sort of figures that if the finger, the pulsation changes, there must be something going on with the heart and with the lungs, and it says that you have an apnea. So it's more indirect. But um, all of these should only be done when the patient has seen a physician and has had a sleep history, and there is a high chance that they're going to have obstructive sleep apnea. By themselves, they shouldn't be used as screening tools. Who should be treated? Anybody who has more than five choking events per hour of sleep and who has symptoms, whether sleepiness or other conditions that are associated with sleep apnea, should get a trial of therapy. The first thing we do is try to reduce the risk factors. Stop smoking, stop the alcohol before going to bed, start exercising, lose weight. It's easier said than done, but it can be done. Some people have. Uh, very good to, to keep good sleeping habits. Uh, very, very important. But the best therapy we have so far, whether you like it or not, this is the best thing we've got so far, is CPAP. It stands for Continuous Positive Airway Pressure. It is a mask and a little machine about the size of a loaf of bread 
with a tube that attaches to the mask, and it pumps air into you, and the sole purpose is to splint the throat open with air pressure. And you learn to breathe on top of that pressure. It's not that tough. The, mach- the new machines are extremely quiet. You hear that? Quieter than that. Very, very quiet. And uh, unless it's leaking, then it, that, that's not quiet. And um, they even have features to make it easier to breathe out against that pressure. They have humidifiers to humidify the air. It filters your breathing. Humidified filter air better than your bed partner is breathing. And it's very effective. As long as the person is willing and able to try this therapy, it can be 100% effective in taking care of the problem. Some people can't. Some people swallow air in the morning. They've got distended bellus and it hurts a lot. So those people cannot do it. And some people have claustrophobia. They can't have something on their face. But most people, if just allowed, uh, allowed, lets the machine do its thing, uh, it'll work really well and they'll wake up feeling refreshed. Another one is a jaw advancement or our mandibular repositioning device. This would have to have a little key. Uh, if the person's still snoring, the wife can go and give it a couple of turns. Okay? Until, it won't hurt him. It won't hurt him and, until you get it in, in good shape. It only goes so far. Um, but uh, it is adjustable. And what it does, it pulls your jaw forward. Okay? Can you do that? Pulls the jaw forward and pulls the tongue away from the back of the throat, tightens things up in the throat. It is good for people who are young, have good teeth. Um, dentures don't work for this. And um, thin. If you're thin and your apnea is mild, it can be effective, quite effective. And the last is surgery. I mentioned surgery is turning out to be quite disappointing. We don't do it except for very, very selected patients. You basically cut a rim of the, of the throat. There are some surgeons who are now studying the patient to see where do they, they collapse the throat and then try to do something surgically to, to, to brace it up and keep it from collapsing. But remember, we have to have a collapsible throat so we can swallow. If you make it stiff, then you can't swallow. And you look like this at the end. You look like an alien. Uh, You don't have the little uh, uvula, the punching bag in the back of your throat. It's turning out that certain exercises of our upper airway and our our throats may be helpful for sleep apnea. This is two studies from England. Does anybody know what this is? This is the didgeridoo. All right. I have one patient who loves it, and she uses the didgeridoo every day as her exercise for sleep apnea. The study shows that it actually dropped the severity by about 50%, which is actually very, very good. Another recent study, this study is just from 2011, but exercise, moderate amount of exercise every day, even in the absence of weight loss, reduced the severity of sleep apnea by 50%. Exercise, I tell you, um, exercise is the elixir of eternal youth. You may be wrinkled and look like a prune, but inside your joints and everything is in good shape. All right, so you're out of there in style. So exercise is also very, very important, uh, and um, we certainly ask everybody to do exercise, but we can't be there to supervise them. Very important. All right, let's switch gears to insomnia. We'll try to go a little faster with insomnia. About 90% of us at one point of our lives, we'll complain that we can't sleep. Either we can't fall asleep, or we can't stay asleep, or wake up too early, or in the morning we just feel like our sleep was not restored, did not help. Now, this one here could be something else. Could be sleep apnea. Could be periodic leg movements during sleep, meaning you're kicking through the night. But the other three definitely indicate some type of insomnia. You just cannot fall asleep or stay asleep or wake up too early and then can't go back to sleep. 
And only about 15% the most of people have sleep apnea that, I'm sorry, insomnia that actually affects their ability to function during the day. And sleep apnea, as you will see, has a number of causes. And you can classify by what causes it. Medical problems, psychiatric problems, which is the most common one, depression, especially, and anxiety, drugs and medications, circadian rhythm problems. And these are not really insomnias, but are looked at as insomnias. People wake up too early, or they can't fall asleep because young people, as you know, they won't go to sleep until 2 in the morning, then they can't wake them up until, you can't wake them up until noon. And so people say insomnia is not. Poor sleep hygiene, that doesn't, doesn't mean you don't bathe before going to bed. It means your habits of sleep are poor. Psychological insomnia, sleep state misperception. People say, Doc, I just don't sleep at all. So we take them to the lab, put them, they sleep like a log, eight hours straight. And the morning says, I told you, didn't sleep at all. It was perfect sleep. So they just don't feel it, don't realize it. And then chronic idiopathic. They've had it since they were kids, and, and they just remember being awake for long periods of time. As children, they still have insomnia. And it's just idiopathic means we don't know why. You just have it. But we look at insomnia from a, a model, it's a, it's a psychological model that I call the three P's, the Spielman model, but it's the three P's. The first P for predisposition. Not everybody gets insomnia. We are predisposed. It runs in our families. Our mother, our father used to be insomniacs, and we tend to have insomnia too. And these people are actually hyper alert. When you, when you test them, they have higher blood pressures, higher heart rates. They respond to stress a little worse than somebody else. So they, there's something already genetic uh, with them. They're worriers that tend to predispose them to insomnia. And then the precipitating factor. There always has to be something that precipitates it. Most of the time, stress. Something major happens in your life and says, I remember since the death of my father or my mother or my grandfather, I've had this problem. And stress sort of brought it on, disease. And then I, I developed poor habits. I started going to the casino every night, okay? And now, well, you can't sleep because you're worrying about all the money you're losing. And then the, the last P is perpetuating factors. These are things that we do ourselves that sort of closes the loop and becomes a vicious cycle. Uh, for example, the person who can't sleep. And so they say, well, in order to get some sleep, I'm going to go to bed earlier. So they spend 12 hours in bed. But they're, they're in bed awake, and they're very frustrated, very angry. They don't look forward to go to bed. And so it makes their insomnia worse. So these are things that also we do in bed. We watch to be in bed. Most people don't go to bed to sleep. They go to bed, what's the first thing they do the first hour in bed? Watch television, TV, and immediately watch TV in bed. And so uh, it's pretty tough to be watching CSI and then turn it off and expect to go to sleep. You can't do that. So leave all those things outside. If something, the only thing you learn about insomnia tonight is that the bed should only be for sleeping. And the other thing, you know, once in a while. But uh, sleeping should be the primary reason for going into the bedroom. You shouldn't go there to entertain yourself, to watch TV, to be angry, to do business, you should go there to sleep. When you walk in there, it's slumber time. This is your fortress. Nothing can hurt you there. And you leave all your cares outside, and you go to sleep, wake up, refresh, and take up your life again. So it looks um, only 15% of insomnia is what we call primary. There's no other reason. It's just insomnia. The rest is associated with medical or psychiatric conditions. And the common uh, non-prescription drugs or medications that can cause insomnia, alcohol, caffeine, diet pills, nicotine. I have folks who smoke heavily, 
and uh, they have to smoke all the time, and they go to sleep, and every two hours they wake up to smoke because the nicotine withdrawal wakes them up. So I've often thought, what if I put a nicotine patch on them before they go to bed? But then they get uh, toxic because they keep on smoking with this nicotine patch. But um, it's a good, it's a, it's a good uh, idea. But there are things that we do that hurt us. I have people that have severe insomnia. All they do is they drink alcohol. And I stop the alcohol, the insomnia goes away. And it's very hard to have people give up their alcohol. I'm not talking about a glass of wine. I'm talking about you know bourbon every night, quite a bit. So the treatment for insomnia, unfortunately, when you go to the, the general doctors, they, they really, when you ask them, tell them, well, I have insomnia. What do they do immediately? Write a prescription, here's Ambien, go home and take it, you'll be fine. It doesn't work very well. I always tell physicians when I give this talk to them, you need to find out what is the cost of the patient's insomnia. Once you find the cost, then you can correct it and then target your treatment specifically to that cost of the insomnia. There are two major therapeutic interventions. You can do medications, pharmacological therapy, or the so-called CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. Now, cognitive behavioral therapy has a number of factors. Uh, there are very, uh, people who are very specialized in giving cognitive behavioral therapy, usually psychologists. MDs like myself, we sort of start at it uh, and, and sort of give you the, the basic principles of it. But if it's really heavy-duty CBT, we have to send you to a psychologist. And it's usually a, an eight-week program to learn you, to help you unlearn the bad habits that you have, the maladaptive behavior that's keeping you with the insomnia. But we start with sleep hygiene, good sleep habits. Relaxation leaves the stress outside of the bedroom. Stimulus control is another technique that teaches you that the bed is only for sleeping, nothing else. In fact, if you wake up in the middle of the night and you can't go back to sleep within 20 minutes, or what you think is 20 minutes because your clock is covered, you don't want to watch the clock, then the thing to do is if you start getting upset and about to curse my name, you get out of bed, go sit down, relax, read something until you're dozing again, and then you go back to bed. You repeat that until you either fall asleep or the alarm clock goes up, goes off. And eventually you learn that the bed is only for sleeping. Sleep restriction improves your efficiency. People who stay in bed 12 hours hoping to sleep four, we actually restrict them only to five hours in bed, and all of a sudden they say, wow, I can sleep. And then slowly we trick them. We start increasing the time in bed until eventually they're sleeping their eight hours per night. It takes work, but it does work. And then cognitive therapy again, corrects your bad habits and your bad behavior and thinking, misperceptions about your insomnia. Now, so sleep hygiene, there's a number of things. You can actually Google this to say sleep hygiene. You'll get all kinds of things to do, such as avoid coffee before going to bed, avoid, avoid heavy exercise before going to bed. Uh, you need one hour to unwind. I really believe on this one. Uh, stop television and then spend one hour to prepare for bed, including doing some good reading. Uh, a book without many pictures, okay? Something that is just text, relaxes you, you like it, and you can still put it down. So a number of things. You can always Google this. Sunlight exposure. I'm a great believer in the morning getting some bright sunlight. No sunglasses because it, 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 it destroys the effect. Uh, don't look at the sun. You'll go blind. Just be where there's lots of bright light. It's very, very important. Very invigorating. A sleep hygiene should be part of any treatment for sleep apnea, but by itself, it doesn't really work. Uh, I already mentioned the hour of sleep preparation. Now, pharmacological therapy. I teach uh, our physicians who um, come to sleep lectures about you need to tailor even the, 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 the medications for sleep 
to the specific problem of the patient. For example, if somebody has trouble just falling asleep, you can give them a short-acting or a long-acting medication. You have uh, Sonata, Rosarum, Ambien, Halcyon, which we don't use very much because in elderly people sometimes um, go bananas where it doesn't have an idiosyncratic reaction and they're climbing the walls through the night, so we avoid that one. If, if they have problems with maintaining their sleep, then we give them a longer-acting preparation, such as the Ambien CR, Lunesta, Restoril, uh, Silenor. So they're longer-acting. You don't want something that will stay with you forever. Some of you may be taking something called clonazepam. That thing hangs around 40 hours in your system, and depending on the dosage that you have and how used to you are to that medication. If you have chronic insomnia, long-term, these are the two medications that have been approved for long-term, something called Roserum and Lunesta. If you only have a few hours left in the night, you wake up in the middle of the night and you're lazy, you don't want to do the behavioral therapy, go outside and read and then come back, then the doctor will give you a medication for this one, for example, Sonata. Or there's a new one just came out in February or January called Intermeso. And it's just sold with them, just at a lower dose. Uh, and it's sublingual. It melts in your mouth, not in your hands. Uh, and, uh, so, um, and that's so that you can, you can sleep and still wake up not feeling too groggy uh, with these medications. Again, I do not provide sleeping medications on our first date. Only after I know why you have the condition. And uh, rarely do I give in. It's when somebody basically just comes, I want medications or else. And uh, even then, we, we fight it off a little bit before I give in. But effectiveness of these medications uh, versus CBT. The effect size is about the same. You can only expect to improve about 50% of your problems with either medications or cognitive behavioral therapy. Cognitive behavioral therapy is superior in reducing the ability to fall asleep, improving sleep quality, and up to 80% of people will benefit from cognitive behavioral therapy. If you look at people who are insomniac, six months later, the people with CBT will be doing better than those people with treatment. And by the way, if you're taking a medication, as soon as you stop it, the effect is gone. You still have your insomnia. Now with cognitive, you've changed. You have adapted to your problems. Speed of action, obviously medications work faster. By about four to eight weeks, they're about the same as far as the effect. The CBT catches up. And definitely long-term effectiveness, um, CBT is much better. And as I mentioned, if you stop your medication, you have insomnia still. In fact, sometimes you have rebound insomnia. You stop it, and insomnia is worse for a few days, and people uh, get really upset about that. Now, can sleeping pill kills, uh, pills kill you? How many of you heard this in the news about that sleeping pills associated? Good, quite a few of you. But this is a study again, uh, Dr. Kripke, um, Dr. Klein, I don't know this physician, I know these other two, they're from uh, Scripps. Dr. Kripke also still works at UCSD. They looked at a lot of people, 10,000 insomniacs, 10,000, and 23,000 people who were match controls, who looked like the insomniacs but did not have insomnia, were not taking medications. And these folks were taking sleeping pills. And they followed them for two and a half years, and the results... Those people who were taking sleeping pills, they had almost a threefold increase in dying and death. Now, some people say, well, that's just because they were sicker. That's why they need medication. But they control all kinds of things, even for pre-existing um, conditions, and uh, it wasn't the pre-existing conditions. I don't know what to tell you whether the sleeping pills were the cause. Uh, what thing, one thing that the paper doesn't talk about is maybe insomnia is what's killing you. 
is not the pills, it's the insomnia. So it would be nice to do a group where his insomnias don't treat him and see how long they last versus those who, those who don't have insomnia. They'll probably go crazy and commit suicide. All right, so um, it's something to ponder about. This is not the first study. There's about 20 other studies, smaller ones in the past, that have sort of shown the same thing. This is why, in my practice, I stress more cognitive behavioral therapy, working a little harder rather than relying on medications in a chronic basis. All right, this is restless leg syndrome. This patient is exhibiting problems with restless legs. And what is restless leg syndrome? It is not a sleep disorder. It's a neurosensory movement disorder that happens when you're awake, not when you're asleep. It may worsen as you're trying to fall asleep, but you are aware that you have it if you have it. And this is how you make the diagnosis, is the urge. It's an urge to move the legs, a sensation, usually from the knees down, but it could be higher up, could be the arms too. Happens when you're resting. It is worse or only happens in the evening. You're sitting down, like in this lecture, you just can't keep still, you're moving around. And if you get, it, get going, get up and walk, it immediately goes away. You sit down again, 10, 15 minutes later, it comes back again. That's restless leg syndrome. You have to have all of them to have the syndrome. About 15% of the population have it. There are certain conditions that make it worse, um, such as being pregnant. Up to 30% of pregnant ladies will have this condition. It goes away after they deliver, and most of them can be familial. An important thing is we need to check the iron levels in your blood. Ferritin is a type of iron that we have in our blood. When ferritin is low, it can be the cause of the restless legs. And it's very, uh, very nice when we are able to treat that and the restless legs goes away. It can range from nothing, you know, it bothers me once in a while, to debilitating. I have patients that, or have had, because now they're good, they're well, that they couldn't sit still. I'm sitting there interviewing, they're walking, pacing back and forth. The restless leg syndrome wouldn't uh, allow them to sit down. And I saw this patient that had that problem just last week. He's sitting down with his legs crossed. Uh, and uh, he was very, very happy. It is worsened by smoking, overexertion, and certain medications. Uh, not important to go over them right now, but the important one here is tricyclic antidepressants and other antidepressants can make this condition worse if not cause it. Prozac, 25% of people with Prozac will have some level degree of restless leg syndrome. In fact, when they're asleep, they have what we call Prozac eyes. Their eyes are bouncing up and down the entire night when they're on Prozac. I tell you, these are mind-bending drugs. They have a, a role, but uh, sometimes the side effects can be quite striking. Periodic leg movements during sleep, these are people who kick every five to, actually every four to 90 seconds, they kick and they kick, usually it's every 20 seconds kick and kick, and each one of these kicks can wake them up, and can be very disturbing to the bed partners, kicking all night long, and in the morning they feel like they didn't rest, because of the kicking, and this is a polysonogram of somebody who's kicking all night long, it didn't bother their sleep, but kicking every 20 seconds, kicking, kicking all night long when this leg movements during sleep actually causes daytime dysfunction, sleepiness, fatigue, then it becomes PLMD, periodic leg movement disorder, not just periodic leg movements during sleep. And we use the same index as in sleep apnea. If it's more than five, we consider it significant. More than 15, that's when Medicare starts paying attention and paying for it. How do we diagnose it? Again, someone presents with sleepiness, and they don't snore, nothing, and uh, bed partners, they kick a lot. Uh, non-refreshing sleep, 
uh, the bed covers in the morning are in disarray. Look like you've been fighting with them. In the, in, in the, in the winter, you wake up cold because the bed covers are on the floor. You've been kicking out of them all night long. And uh, also waking up at night. Frequent awakenings. And it gets worse as we get older. Children have very little. Adults, not so much. The elderly, up to 35% of the elderly may have periodic leg movements during sleep. Not restless leg, periodic leg movements during sleep. So, um, associated conditions, aging, neuropathies, diabetes with neuropathies will tend to get more restless legs. Back injuries that causes back leg pains also causes problems. Iron deficiency also, as I mentioned, for the same as restless legs. Kidney disease. And when the kicking comes, when you have kidney disease, it, it doesn't vogue very well on that condition. So there is a connection between restless legs and the PLMS. And when people have restless legs, up to 80% will have PLMS. But if you have PLMS, only 20% will have restless legs. So there is a connection there, the connection also of the low iron levels in the blood. How do we treat this? There are good medications. It used to be that these poor folks with restless legs, when it's so severe, there was nothing you could do, and people suffer in silence all this time. You can't take many where you go to the opera and you're moving up and down, and so people just kick them out of the opera hall. Uh, but nowadays, there's medications that we can use that are quite effective, but they're not perfect either. They're quite effective. We use something called Mirapex. Recre- These are medications that we use to treat people with Parkinson's disease. And they work also for this condition. Except that in severe cases, it tends to escape it after a year or two years of use. And so you need really a specialist to help you manage these medications. And certainly iron supplements if the iron is low. This is something I wanted to do for a long time, but somebody jumped the gun and did it. Uh, and it says, what if you just massage the legs? So they invented a massager. This thing is like when you go to the hospital, they put these venodynes to squeeze your legs. Well, this one gently squeezes your legs, massages your legs, and people feel better. The last topic that I have, the last uh, sleep disorder is REM sleep behavior disorder. This condition is rare. It is primarily a problem of older men, 70s, 80s, 90s. But it has been described in children, has been described also in women, but it's primarily men. And, um, and the problem with these men is that they're able to act out their dreams. These are REM-related, REM sleep-related dreams. As you remember, in REM sleep, we cannot move. We're virtually paralyzed, except for a breathing in our heart, thank God. But in our eyes, our eyes move. But these folks will be able to move. And these dreams are not just regular dreams. They're, they're really scary dreams, or they're fighting. I have an uncle who has it, and he's had it for, for many years. And the wife would call me and tell me that he fights dirty at night. He would bite her in the middle of the night, uh, puts her in a headlock. Uh, and uh, so I put him on medication, and uh, he's done fine since then. They fall out of bed. For many years, these folks used to tie themselves to bed because we didn't know what it was. So they wouldn't fall out of bed. But often they injure themselves or injure their, their spouses or their bed partners. And there have been celebrated murder cases where uh, you know, they got off with the uh, diagnosis of REM sleep behavior disorder. I don't think it was REM sleep behavior disorder. You, know, you can't go to the kitchen, grab a knife, and then stab your wife and, and, and say it was RBD. Uh, these people cannot walk. They can swing their arms and roll around, but they cannot get up and walk. That was probably premeditated first-degree murder. Who knows? Anyway, 
But one of the important things about this condition is that 85% of these patients will develop Parkinson's disease or they already have some degree of Parkinson's disease that is subclinical, has not been diagnosed. So very important, if you're having symptoms like this, go to your doctor, have a sleep study uh, so that uh, then plans can be made uh, to start your therapy uh, early. The uh, diagnosis is made by clinical history. The polysonogram also helps us make the diagnosis because we can see how the, the uh, loss of tone all of a sudden is regained while these people have REM sleep. And there's a REM sleep behavior questionnaire uh, and must rule out sleep apnea. There are a group of these people who all they have is severe obstructive sleep apnea and it acts out just like RBD. And they're fighting and acting out their dreams and we put them on CPAP and this syndrome goes away. So it's important to differentiate them. So this is why we do a sleep study on this individual. So don't, don't think you're going to get Parkinson's. It could be plain old sleep apnea. So how do we treat it? Make the bedroom safe. Remove any sharp edges you know, from, from the, the corners, from the sides of, of the bed, because people fall and you hit your temple in some sharp corner. Uh, if necessary, we put the mattress on the floor so that they roll out of bed. They don't go very far. And um, lock the doors and um, put heavy curtains in the windows in case you know they go against the window, although it's less likely. We counsel patients about Parkinson's disease and then treatment. Treatment happens to be very effective. Tiny doses of clonazepam, clonopin, a quarter of a milligram, the most one milligram at bedtime, like a sleeping pill, extremely effective, takes it away. Uh, and uh, if you give too much, then you have problems. You, know, you don't want to wet the bed or do things like that. Uh, but it's extremely effective. And nowadays, also high doses of melatonin may also work, but melatonin in high doses may increase your blood pressure. So you've got to be followed by a doctor. You can't just auto-self-medicate yourself. So this is REM sleep behavior disorder. Rare, but it's quite striking when you see it. It's sometimes kind of funny, and people tell you what they were dreaming about and what they were doing and, uh, and how they were beating up on their spouse. Uh, but anyway... And I believe this is all we have. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.